ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we'll continue from the point that we were discussing last week and that is the statement of the author وَكُلُّ مَا سَمِعْتَ مِنَ الْآثَارِ شَيْئًا مِمَّا لَمْ يَبْلُغْهُ عَقْلُكَ نَحْوُ قَوْلِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم قُلُوبُ الْعِبَادِ بَيْنَ أَسْبَعِينِ مِنْ أَصَابِعِ الرَّحْمَنِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ وَقَوْلُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى يَنْزِلُ إِلَى السَّمَاءِ الدُّنْيَا وَيَنْزِلُ يَوْمَ عَرَفَةٍ وَيَنْزِلُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَإِنَّ جَهَنَّمَ لَا يَزَالُ يُطْرَحُ فِيهَا حَتَّى يَضَعُ عَلَيْهَا حَتَّى يَضَعَ عَلَيْهَا قَدَمُهُ جَلَّ ثَنَاءُ وَقَوْلُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى لِلْعَبْدِ إِنْ مَشَيْتَ إِلَيَّ هَرْوَلْتُ إِلَيْكَ وَقَوْلُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى يَنْزِلُ يَوْمَ عَرَفَةٍ وَقَوْلُ خَلَقَ اللَّهُ آدَمَ عَلَى سُورَتِهِ وَقَوْلُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ رَأَيْتُ رَبِّي فِي أَحْسَنِ سُورَةٍ وأشباه هذه الأحاديث فعليك بالتسليم والتصديق والتفويض والرضا ولا تفسر شيئا من هذه بهواك فإن الإيمان بهذا واجب فمن فسر شيئا من هذا بهواه أو رده فهو جهمي In this section the author was saying that everything of the narrations which you heard but cannot fully understand all of the narrations that you have heard but you cannot fully understand. Everything which you heard but cannot fully understand, like the saying of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the hearts of the servants are between two fingers of the most merciful, the mighty and majestic. And the saying of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Indeed, Allah descends to the lowest heaven and He descends on the day of Arafah and He descends on the day of resurrection and hellfire does not cease having them thrown into it until He, the Majestic, places His foot upon it. Allah the Most High is saying to the servant also, If you walk towards me, I run towards you. And the saying of the Prophet ﷺ, Allah created Adam in his image. And the saying of Allah's Messenger ﷺ, I saw my Lord in the most excellent form. And the likes of these ahadith, even if you cannot understand them, you cannot fully comprehend what is meant by them, then accept them, affirm them, and perform tafweed, meaning abandon delving into how they are. Abandon delving into them how and what, but be pleased with them. Do not explain any of them with your own feelings or desires. Where Since believing in them is obligatory, so anyone who explains anything from them according to his own desires or rejects them is a jahmi. So here now the author is talking about the narrations of the Quran and the Sunnah, whereby on occasion you may come across certain narrations, certain ahadith, certain ayat of the Quran, that maybe your mind cannot understand how this can work. Your mind does not comprehend or fully understand the meaning of these particular narrations. That could be the case. That certain narrations, you may not fully grasp and understand them. So the author, he gives a few examples, like the hadith where it says, that the hearts of the servants are between two fingers of the fingers of Ar-Rahman, of Allah. And the statement that Allah descends to the lowest heaven every last third of the night, and that Allah descends on the day of Arafah, and that Allah comes and descends on the day of judgment, and that the hellfire, it will be cast into the hellfire, thrown into the hellfire. And the hellfire, as the longer narration it mentions, the hellfire will then say, 
Is there more? Is there more? As it mentions in the Quran, Hal min Mazid, until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places his foot upon the hellfire, and then it will say, Qati, Qati, sufficient enough. Wa qawluhu ta'ala, and the statement of Allah to his servant, if you walk towards me, I will run towards you. All of these different types of narrations, and there are others, like Allah created Adam upon his image, and the Prophet ﷺ said, I saw my Lord in the best of image. All of these types of narrations that you hear, perhaps your minds cannot grasp. What is the, in, uh, the understanding of these types of narrations? So when that occurs, when something comes to you from the Quran and the Sunnah, which is authentic, then even if you cannot grasp and understand the details of that, عَلَيْكَ taslim, You must still submit to it, accept it, affirm it, and to believe in it, and to be content with it, that these are narrations of the Quran and the Sunnah, proven Sunnah. So you are happy and you're content with them and you believe in them. And as for the greater understanding of them, then you perform the tafweed of that, meaning that you do not delve into trying to understand things that maybe are beyond you and above you. But what you certainly do not do is attempt to interpret those narrations with your own intellects. Attempt to interpret those narrations with your own desires. And this is something which occurs to a great degree. And one of the reasons why so many people become misguided, that whenever they see a narration or a hadith, which they can't quite comprehend, or they don't want to accept the explanations of the scholars on it, because their own mind tells them something different, their own desires tell them something different, then they interpret it upon their own understanding, their own minds, their own logic, their own interpretation, and that leads them astray as a consequence. And that is one of the greatest factors that causes the people to be led away from the Salafi methodology. That when they come across the texts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, instead of affirming those texts and sticking to the explanations of the Salaf, of the great scholars who have taken the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the Salaf, they attempt to interpret them with their own intellects. Or they give them a meaning which is suitable to their own desires. And that's what you see so often. The people, they will come to you not with just evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but on top of that statements of the scholars, which they will then interpret upon their own understanding. So the Shaykh says, yes, give da'wah to people, you have to give da'wah. So then the people, they come and interpret that, therefore, we should go and cooperate with the Shia, for example. We should go and cooperate with the Ikhwanis, go and cooperate with everyone. The Shaykh said in the fatwa, give da'wah to people. They will take statements which are not intended as they perceive them. And this is what the author mentions here from the olden times, that whomsoever interprets these narrations with his own intellect, with his own desires, then that is what will lead him astray, and whomsoever rejects it, then that person is the Jahmi. Here, overall, he is talking about the Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. The Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. And we know with regards to the Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah, that this aqidah of al-asma wa sifat is built upon the foundational ayah in the Qur'an, which is, which ayah in the Qur'an is the aqidah, the understanding, the foundation of the names and attributes of Allah based upon This is the ayah which is the foundation, one of the principal ayat, the principal ayah when it comes to this topic of the names and attributes of Allah. Here in these narrations it was talking about some of those names and attributes. Allah descends in the last third of the night. Allah descends on the day of Arafah. 
These types of things come into the names and attributes of Allah. Ar-Rahman, one of the names of Allah. All of those types of things, the foundation of them is the ayah, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ How and why? Because this ayah, it explains to you how you are supposed to understand the names and attributes of Allah. The first part of the ayah says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ Which means... There is nothing like unto Allah. There is nothing like Him. No comparison, no resemblance, no example, no equal, no partner. Nothing which resembles Allah at all. So that therefore means that when we come to understanding the names and attributes of Allah, Allah has different names, Allah has different attributes. We know straight away that all of these names and attributes of Allah, of course we affirm them when we believe in them, but they cannot possibly be in any way things that resemble anything in creation. There cannot ever be any comparison. Even if it is mentioned about the foot of Allah or the face of Allah or uh, the hands of Allah, these names and attributes particularly here of Allah, we affirm them, but we know for definite they will not be comparable or equal or resembling anything in creation. How? Because the ayah just says there at the beginning, There is nothing like Allah. There is nothing which resembles Allah. So even if we affirm all of these attributes of Allah, then it is an affirmation which has no resemblance within it. We're not resembling Allah to creation in any way. That can't be the case. So you affirm the attributes of Allah, the hands, the face, etc. But you also understand that these hands or the, the hands and the face, etc. The attributes of Allah, they are not in any way anything you can imagine. That they are not in any way comparable or resemble creation at all. But then on top of that it says, الْبَصِيرِ That he is the all-hearing, the all-seeing. So that is an affirmation of some of the attributes, the names and attributes of Allah. So we understand that we are to affirm the names and attributes of Allah. We affirm them. But we do not make any comparison to creation. There is nothing resembling Allah, but He is the all-hearing and the all-seeing. So you affirm the names and attributes, but you don't make any comparison to creation. That's the basis of the names and attributes of Allah. In that example then, it refutes the people of misguidance when it came to the names and attributes of Allah. Because some people of misguidance, they simply rejected all of the names and attributes of Allah. The Mu'attila. Because they said from amongst their arguments, that if you affirm these names and attributes to Allah, you'll end up comparing Allah to creation. We cannot compare Allah to creation. So therefore, the only way to be safe, they said, was just negate the names and attributes from Allah. That way you'll be safe from ever making any comparison. Somebody might think that's logical. You want to make sure that you're not comparing Allah to creation, just negate all of the names and attributes of Allah. But it is a false argument. It is a false understanding. That is the way of the Mu'attila who rejected all of the names and attributes of Allah. We know we can't do that because the second part of the ayah affirms them. He is the all-hearing and the all-seeing. So we understand we're not supposed to reject the names and attributes of Allah. But on the other hand, we don't compare Allah to creation in any way. We don't compare Allah to creation in any way. That's why when he says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know that when we're going to affirm the names and attributes, we're not going to make any resemblance to creation. So the two parts of the ayah, they refute the two groups of people. One group of people who reject the names and attributes of Allah, and one group of people who compare the names and attributes of Allah to creation. Which part of the ayah refutes the people who reject the names and attributes? Think carefully. Which part of the ayah refutes those people who just reject the names and attributes of Allah? There is nothing like unto Allah, but He is the all-hearing and the all-seeing. 
So that affirms the names and attributes of Allah. So the ones who reject them, they can't be right. But then, there's nothing like unto Allah that refutes the people who then make affirmation of the names and attributes of Allah, but so much that they begin to compare and make resemblance that refutes them too. So it shows us you affirm them, affirm the names and attributes of Allah, but do not make any comparisons and resemblances. Affirm them, but do not make any comparisons and resemblances. Here, there were some examples given then of certain types of ahadith that perhaps a person may not comprehend, he may not understand. Here there was a narration that قُلُوبُ الْعِبَادِ بَيْنَ أَصْبِعِينَ مِنْ أَصَابِعِ الرَّحْمَانِ عَزَّ وَجَلَ That the hearts of the servants are between two fingers from the fingers of the Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we say, نَعَمْ أَنَا أُؤْمِنُ بِهَذَا وَهُوَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ لَكِنَّ الْكَيْفِيَّةِ لَا أَعْرِفٍ وَالسُؤَالُ عَنْهُ بِدْعَةِ كَمَا قَالَ مَالِكَ السُؤَالُ عَنْهُ بِدْعَةِ So when it comes to saying this narration now, if somebody says to you, it says that the hearts of the servants are between two fingers of the fingers of Allah. Someone come and says to you, explain that, I don't understand. What do you mean? How the hearts of the people between the two fingers of Allah? You say to them, upon the principles of understanding the names and attributes of Allah, we say, we affirm the narration. We affirm the narration, <coughs> we affirm the narration that the hearts of the servants are between two fingers of the fingers of Allah. However, we do not delve into trying to understand how. How these things occur, Allah has not told us. We are not aware of how. So we cannot make any comparison to creation. We can't give any other type of imagination to it. We can't give any other type of interpretation to it. We don't know the how. That's why the scholars, they say, when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah, don't ask the question how. We mentioned last time the statement of Imam Malik. And if you remember the statement of Imam Malik, then that explains to you all of the names and attributes of Allah and what you're supposed to do. What was the statement of Imam Malik? When that person came and Al-Imam Malik was reciting the ayah regarding Allah being established above the throne and the person said How did Allah go above the throne? How is Allah above the throne? So Al-Imam Malik he said to him what? So he said you affirm it Al-Istiwa ma'loom it is known, this is an attribute of Allah, mentioned that Allah is above the throne, etc. Al-Istiwa, he, goes, he says, that is something which is understood. That is something which is known. Wal But the second part, how Allah does that is unknown to us. How Allah is established above the throne, the details, they are unknown to us. The how is unknown to us. The actual fact that Allah is established above the throne, that is known to us. Affirmed in the texts, we affirm it. That is known, that Allah is established above the throne. How does that occur? The second part, we don't know that. The third part, what did he say? Asking the question, how does Allah do that? How does Allah go above the throne? How does Allah descend in the last third of the night? How do all these things happen? How are the slaves of the hearts of the slaves between the fingers of Allah? How? How? That is a bid'ah to ask this type of question. To go into those types of details, you are performing a bid'ah. Because the salaf, they never went into that. That is not knowledge that we have been given. And the fourth part. No, there's one more part left. First part, al-istiwa ma'loom. These names and attributes, they are known to us. Al-kayfu majhul. How do they happen? That's unknown to us. Al-su'alu anhu bid'a. Asking about it, how and what and all those details, it's an innovation, don't do it. But, the fourth part, al-imanu bihi wajib. You must have iman in it. You must have iman in those names and attributes. So we know of them, 
We know about them and what they mean generally. Al-Istiwa, Allah above the throne, etc. We know that. The details and how, we don't know that. And we don't ask about that. But we still have Iman in all of that. Even though we don't know the details, part two, and we don't ask about it, part three, the details of how, part four, we still have Iman in all of that though. We have Iman that Allah is above the throne, established above the throne. We have Iman that Allah descends in the last third of the night every night. We have Iman in all of that. Even if we don't know how that occurs, and we don't ask about how that occurs, we have Iman that this is something in reality, this is from the names and attributes of Allah. So we affirm it at the beginning, we know it, we know what it is, we don't know the details, we don't ask the details, but we have Iman in it still. This is the general principle regarding the names and attributes of Allah. So then the narration that came after that, that Allah descends in the last third of the night. Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala yanzila ila sama'id dunya. That Allah descends in the last third of the night. And then Allah says, who is calling upon me and I will answer to them. Who is seeking forgiveness, I will give it to them. Who is seeking repentance, I will give them the repentance. Hal min mustaghfirin fa'aghfira lah. Hal min da'in fa'astajiba lah. Hal min musta'atin fa'a'atih. Uh, is there anybody asking for anything? I'll give it to him. Is there anybody uh, seeking forgiveness? Is there anybody uh, seeking tawbah, etc.? So then, with regards to this, again, we say, Allah descends in the last third of the night. We accept that. We accept that. That's the first part. That is known to us, that Allah descends in the last third of the night uh, and uh, asks who is seeking my forgiveness, etc. That is known to us. How does that happen? How does Allah descend in the last third of the night? How, what are the details of that affair? We don't know. We're not going to either ask and go into details of that. It is not permissible, it's not from our religion to go into detail of asking how though. How does Allah descend? When people start making these questions, they say, the last third of the night in the UK is different to the last third of the night in America and Australia. So when does Allah descend? How? That type of thing, it's not for us to ask. We know that Allah descends in the last third of the night. This type of philosophical argument, but it's different times last third of the night in different parts of the world. Now they are going into this how and what, how does Allah descend? Different times last third of the night. That is not for us. We affirm that Allah descends in the last third of the night. We don't know the details of how, we don't ask about the details of how, but we have iman. That certainly in the last third of the night Allah descends and that it is a blessed time for a person to arise and to pray and to make dua. We have iman in all of that. And we do not try to interpret this with our own intellects as the author had mentioned earlier. We don't try to interpret this with our own desires because some of the people of innovation, they did. They attempted to interpret these texts with their own Desires. So what did they begin to say? What were some of the interpretations of the people of deviation who did not want to accept that Allah descends in the last third of the night? They wanted to interpret it with their own interpretations, with their false interpretations upon their desires. So what are the kinds of things that they mentioned instead when they didn't want to accept that Allah descends in the last third of the night? Some of them said it is the angels of Allah that descend in the last third of the night, not Allah. Also, the mercy of Allah, some of them said it is the mercy of Allah also. The command of Allah. These types of things they mention, it is the command of Allah, it is the mercy of Allah, it is the angels of Allah. They are the ones who descend in the last third of the night, not Allah. They say, how? How Allah descends in the last third of the night? They say, that doesn't make sense. I can't be. It's the angels of Allah that descend. It's the mercy of Allah that descends. So, how would you refute, for example, those arguments now? If they say it's the angels of Allah that descend or the mercy of Allah that descends, what could you say to them? There's no evidence of that. That's true. You can say for a start, 
If you're going to tell us that it's the angels of Allah that descend or the command of Allah or the mercy of Allah, if you're going to say this hadith means one of those things, then firstly there is no evidence for that. There is no narration from any companion, from any of the salaf. Who from the salaf gave this explanation of this hadith that it means the angels of Allah? Who from the salaf ever mentioned it is the mercy of Allah? So you could say that. You could say if you're going to tell us this is the interpretation of it, who from the salaf said that? Give us something from the Salaf where they mention this is the interpretation of this hadith. So they will not be able to find it. That will show to you straight away that the Salaf were not upon this opinion of his. Because he cannot find a single narration from any of the Salaf backing him up. In fact, that will therefore prove that the Salaf were in opposition to this person. They were upon the standard belief of Ahlul Sunnah that you affirm it and you don't ask about it and you don't uh, delve into that and you have Iman in it. That is the default. So that's what the Salaf were upon. If he's going to say, no, it's not like that, it actually means angels and this and that, then he has to prove the Salaf were upon that opinion. And he won't be able to. That's a point. What else could you say to them? If they say it's the angels of Allah that descend and not Allah. What else could you say? What else could be a response to them? If they say that it's the angels of Allah that descend. This was an express statement. Express statements that it is Allah who descends. That's like you could say, because the narration says, Yanzilu Rabbuka, your Lord descends. The hadith very clearly mentions, your Lord descends. So it is the way of Ahl Sunnah that we leave the texts as they are. The hadith says, your Lord descends. Why are you going to say, no, actually what it means is the angels of your Lord descend or the mercy of your Lord descends. Where is those additional words? So it's true, you could say those additional words aren't there. You are interpreting those additional words from yourself. What's the proof that those additional words go into that ayah or into that hadith? On top of that, you could say to them that the hadith says, Allah descends in the last third of the night and says, who is seeking my forgiveness and I will forgive him. Who is seeking repentance, I will give him repentance. Who is seeking for any other dua, I will answer his dua. Is it possible for an angel to come and say to the people, who is seeking forgiveness, I'll forgive him. Is it the angels who forgive the people? Is it the angels who answer the dua of the people? Is it the angels who give repentance to the people? It is not. That is only for Allah. Only Allah will give the forgiveness to the people and answer the dua of the people. It's not possible for an angel to come and say, I will forgive you, ask me. And ask me for your dua, I will give you your dua. It's impossible. Same for the mercy of Allah. How does the mercy of Allah come and say, I will forgive you and I will give you your dua? On top of the fact, what else could you say about the argument that it is the mercy of Allah? One is, of course, the mercy of Allah can't come and say to you, I will forgive you, I will answer your dua. But what else could you say? As a refutation, it can't be the mercy of Allah that descends. Uh, that's mentioned, we said that, something else. Another point you could mention to them to prove this is not the mercy of Allah that is being spoken about in this hadith. Huh? Correct, that's the same thing as before, that the mercy of Allah can't be the one who forgives you, but something else. Because if it meant the mercy of Allah, that would mean that the mercy of Allah it only descends in the last third of the night. Is the mercy of Allah not upon the earth for the rest of the day, the rest of the 20 hours of the day? No mercy of Allah comes to us except just in the last third of the night. That's impossible. The mercy of Allah it comes. The mercy of Allah is, is, is great. You can't say the mercy of Allah is restricted to just the last third of the night. That's impossible for you to make that restriction. And if you're going to say this hadith means the mercy of Allah, that's what you're saying. You're saying the mercy of Allah only comes in the last third of the night. What about the rest of the night and the rest of the full day? No mercy of Allah on the earth, no mercy of Allah coming to us. That can't be right. So that again shows to you this is an incorrect explanation of theirs that it's the mercy of Allah. So all of that proves clearly that this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who descends in the last third of the night. And uh, it is not as they say or as they claim that it is the mercy of Allah or it is the angels of Allah. The hadith, it goes against that. Uh, and then there are other examples also that were mentioned. 
for example, similarly that Allah descends on the uh, day of Arafah, uh, similarly about Allah descending and coming on the day of judgment, and there are other ayat regarding that too. وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكُ صَفًّا صَفًّا That is talking about when they come, Allah comes on the day of judgment to judge between the people. Again, the people of innovation, they made up things then. They said it is not Allah who comes on the day of judgment. It is the command of Allah that comes on the day of judgment. And again, that is going outside of the actual texts. That is their own interpretation. It is their own addition that they will not find from the way of the Salaf. Uh, and these are the narrations that were mentioned concerning the hellfire, how it will continuously have people and rocks thrown into it, and it will continuously keep saying, is there more, is there more, until eventually Allah places his foot upon it, and then it will say, qati, qati, sufficient, enough, enough. These narrations, again, we accept them. It is mentioning there the foot of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the other one it was mentioning the fingers these affairs, we accept them, the hands of Allah, the face of Allah, we affirm them, we believe in them. And we do not go into the how, and we do not compare them to creation. That is the biggest mistake that a person, when he hears about the attributes of Allah, the fingers or the hands or the, eye, uh, the eyes, the face, the foot, all these things which are mentioned, and a person starts to picture them in his mind. He starts to make an imagination in his mind of what they look like, and that is false. No matter how much you imagine, you will never be able to imagine the reality. And there is no comparison whatsoever, there is no resemblance whatsoever. So you don't attempt to imagine this or to perceive this. That is beyond uh, what we have been given. After that then, so if we understand those principles regarding the names and attributes of Allah, uh, we then go on to the next section. And the next section says, وَمَنْ زَعَمَ أَنَّهُ يَرَى رَبَّهُ فِي دَارِ الدُّنْيَا فَهُوَ كَافِرٌ بِاللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلٌ That whomsoever claims that he sees his Lord in this world, then he is a disbeliever in Allah the Mighty and Majestic. Anyone who claims to have seen his Lord in this world is a disbeliever in Allah the Mighty and Majestic. Here now on this topic of being able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the author says whoever claims to have seen Allah in this world is a disbeliever. What is the aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah regarding seeing Allah? Is it possible for us to see Allah or not? Who can explain? We've done it before. Yeah. We've done it before. It's not possible to see Allah in this world because when the Musa wants to see him, then. What about the hereafter then? In the hereafter, yeah. So it's not possible to see Allah in this world, but it is possible to see Allah in the hereafter. Yeah. That's your opinion. Does everybody agree with his opinion or you want to disagree with him? He says, you cannot see Allah in this world, but in the hereafter, after the resurrection, in the hereafter, we will be able to see Allah. The believers will be able to see Allah. That is correct. That is the belief of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah regarding seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So remember that. In this world, in this creation, it is not possible for us to see Allah. But after the resurrection, in the hereafter, the afterlife, then it is possible for the believers to see Allah. The believers will see Allah in the hereafter, in the afterlife. But in this world, in this creation, before the resurrection, then it is not possible for us to see Allah. That is the correct position of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. What do the people of deviation say? They say, Everywhere but about seeing Allah though. What do they say about seeing Allah? So some people of innovation, they say you cannot see Allah ever. In this world or even after resurrection. Some people of innovation, they say you can't see Allah ever. In this world or in the afterlife. 
And that is false. And others they say, they say you can see Allah all the time in the afterlife and in this world now too. So you can see how those groups, they go to an extreme and that is always how it is. Ahlul Sunnah is always upon that balanced pathway with the evidences in the middle pathway. The people who go to the extremes are always the people of deviation. Ahlul Sunnah now upon the evidences they say that we cannot see Allah in this world but we will see Allah in the hereafter. The people of deviation they say no you can't see Allah ever in this world or in the hereafter. And the others they say, you can see Allah all the time in this world and in the hereafter. Ahlul Sunnah they say, no, in this world you cannot, but in the hereafter you can. And some of the evidences, for example, the Prophet ﷺ, did he see Allah or not? On the night of Al-Isra wal Mi'raj, did the Prophet ﷺ see Allah or not? No. In the narration it says that the Prophet ﷺ was asked, Did you see your Lord? Hal ra'ayta rabbaka? He said, ﷺ, Noorun anna arahu. That it is a light. A light. How? Where could I see him from? Bima'ana ma ra'ahu. Meaning that he didn't see Allah. When he was asked, did you see Allah? He said, there's a light. There was a light. How could I see Allah? Where could I see Allah from? Meaning that he did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That the covering of Allah is a light. That the covering of Allah is a light. If that was exposed, then uh, the, the, that light, wherever it ends up to, then it would uh, uh, burn everything in its pathway. Meaning all of these narrations, they indicate that the Prophet ﷺ did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then we need to come to explain some of the evidences that prove we cannot see Allah in this world, but we can see Allah in the hereafter. One of them is a clear hadith. It says, لَن تَرَوْ رَبَّكُمْ حَتَّى تَمُوتُ You will not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until you die. That very clearly highlights to you that you can't see Allah now. But when you die, the resurrection afterwards, then you can. Because the hadith says you will not see Allah until you die. So when you do die and the hereafter starts, then you can see Allah. On top of that, there are all of the ayat in the Quran that mention seeing Allah. The ayat in the Quran that mentions seeing Allah. So now, Hafaz have to tell us the ayat where it mentions seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Waladayna mazid. This is one ayah where it mentions that those who do righteousness will have paradise, they will have the goodness, etc. Waladayna mazid. And we have an addition for them. And there is another ayah similar to it. Similar, very similar. Those who do righteousness will have husna. Al-husna, yani paradise. Waziyada, and an addition. So these two ayat now, that mention in them the mazid and the ziyada, the extra that the believers will get on the day of judgment or in paradise. What is this extra that is mentioned in the Quran? What is the tafsir of it? The tafsir of that is to be able to see Allah. When it says in the Quran, the believers will have whatever they want, all of the, uh, the, the goodness, the paradise, but even extra. What is the extra? What's the tafsir of that? The tafsir is to be able to see Allah. That is the extra on top. But how do we know that's the correct tafsir? What if somebody comes along, these people who reject seeing Allah, they say, what's your proof that's the tafsir? What's your proof that tafsir is that this means you get to see Allah, that this extra is seeing Allah? They say, maybe the extra is some other reward you'll get. So how do you prove it to them? Hadith. Because what's the best way of doing tafsir? What's the best way to do tafsir of the Qur'an? Use the Qur'an itself because some ayahs of the Qur'an, the explanation is in different parts of the Qur'an. 
other parts of the Quran, there are ayat. If you look at them, they explain to you other ayat which came before or after. So some parts of the Quran, they explain other parts of the Quran. So the best way to do tafsir of an ayah is see anywhere else in the Quran, is this ayah explained anywhere else in the Quran? If it is excellent, you have the tafsir of the ayah from the Quran itself. That's the best way. But what if you look at an ayah and you can't find anywhere else in the Quran explaining this ayah? Then what do you look at? The hadith, the sunnah of the Prophet If you find an authentic hadith telling you what the ayah means, that's it. You got it from the Prophet the tafsir. Tafsir from the Prophet so in this example, that's exactly what we have. We have the tafsir of the Prophet ﷺ on the ayah. The Prophet ﷺ told us in the hadith that this ayah, hadith in Sahih Muslim as well, that this ayah means the extra is to see Allah. Other evidences from the Quran that you will see Allah on the Day of Judgment or in the hereafter. وجوه يومئذ ناظرة إلى ربها ناظرة. The حفاظ you're going to have to do something with them. وجوه يومئذ ناظرة إلى ربها ناظرة. That on that day their faces are going to be bright and glowing. Doing what? إلى ربها ناظرة. Looking at their Lord. Looking at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that shows to you again a proof to be able to see Allah in the hereafter. Their faces will be bright and glowing and radiant. Looking at Allah. Some of the scholars they say in the tafsir of the ayah. That when the people they see Allah. As a consequence of seeing Allah. The effect of that will be. That their faces will start to glow and become bright. Other scholars they say no. Actually even before they see Allah. Their faces will be made bright and glowing. Ready to see Allah. But in any case, their faces will be bright and glowing in seeing Allah. Another proof from the Quran, which tells us and shows us that it will, uh, it is correct that the believers, believers will see Allah on the Day of Judgment. Surah Al-Mutaffifin, make it easy for the Hufaf. Most people, they know Surah Al-Mutafifin. So what's the evidence? That the believers will see Allah, but the criminals, the mujrimeen, they will not see Allah. Where's this ayah? Mutafifin. كَلَّا إِنَّهُمْ عَنْ رَبِّهِمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ لَمَحْجُوبُونَ that nay, they will be blocked from seeing their Lord. Mahjubun, blocked, veiled. Who will be? Who will be blocked and veiled from seeing their Lord? The kuffar, the wrongdoers, the criminals, the mujrimun. They are the ones who are going to be blocked from seeing Allah. How is that a proof that the believers will see Allah then? Because if the kuffar are going to be blocked from seeing Allah, then that must mean the believers are not going to be blocked. If the believers were going to be blocked as well, they'd be the same as the kuffar. If you're going to stop and veil the believers from seeing Allah as well, then what's the punishment on the kuffar? Then the believers are the same as the kuffar in that case. But the believers are not the same as the kuffar. The believers are given honor and status and rank and respect. So as a consequence, they are not veiled. The disbelievers and the mujrimun are veiled. But the believers, their rank and station is above them. They are not veiled, that means. Even though it doesn't say that in the ayah. It doesn't say in the ayah, and the believers will not be veiled. It just says that those wrongdoers, they will be veiled. But you can understand from that. You can understand from that. If the disbelievers or the wrongdoers will be veiled, then obviously the opposite of that is that the believers will not be veiled. That is something the scholars they mention. Mafhum uh, al-Mukhalafa That you take the understanding of the opposite If the disbelievers are going to be veiled Then the opposite of that The believers are not going to be veiled So these are various evidences telling us that Allah will be seen by the believers in the hereafter That's that proven But what about the other side of it Proving that you cannot see Allah in this world though That doesn't prove that you can't see Allah in this world it's one of the evidences they use. We'll come to it in a moment. But the other one you mentioned before, 
uh, about Musa salam, when it was said, Lan tarani, you will not see me. When Musa salam, requested to see Allah, then it was mentioned, you will not see me. But that obviously is referring to this world. In this world, you cannot see me. In the hereafter, we've just mentioned all of the evidences proving you can. And the hadith that we said before, you will not see Allah until you die. So in this world, before you die, you can't see Allah. So these are evidences showing in this world you cannot see Allah, but in the hereafter you can. Then this ayah, that the eyesight cannot understand, cannot grasp the vision of Allah. But Allah grasps uh, or comprehends and uh, envisions them. The people of innovation said there, this ayah is a proof that you cannot see Allah. La absar. The eyesight cannot grasp Allah, it says, in the Quran. So how do you explain to them? They say, no, this ayah is very clear. La absar. Eyesight cannot grasp, they cannot comprehend Allah. That's what the ayah says, clear. And that is talking about the hereafter. So how do you explain to them? If they use that ayah and they say it's a proof you can't see Allah. Allah says the eyesight cannot understand they cannot see Allah they cannot grasp Allah rather or comprehend Allah so the principle Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned is that if the people of deviation they come to you with an authentic evidence to try to prove some falsehood of theirs then they must obviously be using that evidence in an incorrect manner. If they are trying to use an authentic evidence to prove falsehood, it's impossible that an authentic evidence isn't going to prove falsehood. So they must be using that authentic evidence in the wrong way, misinterpreting it to try to prove their falsehood. So Shaykh al-Islam says, use the same evidence back on them with the correct understanding of it and it will refute them then. Show them the same evidence with the correct understanding and it will refute their false interpretation they were using it for. So now what is the correct understanding of this ayah? The correct understanding of it is, as it says, that the eyesight cannot comprehend Allah. The very fact that Allah mentions people will not be able to comprehend Him is a proof that people will see Him. Because to be able to comprehend something, what do you need to be able to do? To see it in the first place. If you cannot see something in the first place, then obviously you cannot, you cannot really comprehend it. If you can't see it, then you can't really comprehend it. So the fact that Allah mentions they will not be able to comprehend must mean that initially they are going to be able to see. Because if they weren't going to be able to see in the first place, then clearly they're not going to be able to comprehend anyway. But the fact that Allah mentions that then shows to you that if they can't comprehend Allah, and Allah is mentioning that to us, then it must mean that prior to that, they are going to be able to see Allah. So Allah is telling us, you'll be able to see Him, but you won't be able to comprehend the might and the majesty of Allah. And the example the scholars give is like the sun or the moon. If you look at the sun or the moon, you can see it. You look at the moon now on a full night, and you can see the moon, but you don't comprehend it. Meaning, even though you can see it, you wouldn't be able to judge how much it weighs by looking at it. You wouldn't be able to judge what the distance is between the moon and us just by looking at it. You wouldn't be able to judge what the weight of the moon is by just looking at it. You wouldn't be able to judge any of those things. Why not? You can look at it, you can see it. Even though you can see it, you are not able to comprehend it. So here that shows that you see something but you don't comprehend it. You can see the moon but you don't understand the details of it just looking at it. You don't know how much the diameter is, how much the weight of it is, what the distance of it is. You don't know any of those details even though you can see it clearly with your own eyes. So you can see something but you don't necessarily comprehend it. And that's what it means here. That the people will see Allah but they will not be able to grasp and comprehend the might and majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the aqeedah of Ahl-Sunnah regarding seeing Allah. So those people who claim that they see Allah in this world, as some of the Sufis they do, some of the Sufis they believe that they see Allah in this world, 
They believe that at night they go to sleep and they go to paradise and they walk around in paradise and they are with Allah and then they come back in the mornings and all these types of deviances that they promote in their books and to their students. So all of that is incorrect. Uh, so the next section after that, that's regarding the belief in seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The belief, the aqidah regarding uh, seeing Allah. We understand that it's not in this world, but it is in the hereafter. And that the might and the majesty of Allah is such that you will not comprehend Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, grasp what your vision of that is, of Allah is, but that you will see Allah, the believers, and the disbelievers do not. And whomsoever claims in this world they see Allah, then the author says here, that's a disbeliever. He is stating something false, stating something which is a lie. After that, وَالْفِكْرَ فِي اللَّهِ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى لِقَوْلِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ سَأَسَلَّمْ تَفَكَّرُوا فِي الْخَلْقِ وَلَا تَفَكَّرُوا فِي اللَّهِ فَإِنَّ الْفِكْرَ فِي الرَّبِّ تَقْدَحُ الشَّكْفِ فِي الْقَلْبِ So now the author says, thinking about Allah, trying to imagine Allah is an innovation. Because the Messenger of Allah said, do not think, or think about the creation, but do not try to think about Allah, the imagining of Allah. Because thinking about Allah, it will cause doubt to fall into you. Reflecting deeply about Allah is an innovation. Imagining and trying to perceive that. As Allah's Messenger said, reflect upon the creation, but do not reflect upon Allah, trying to imagine Allah. Since trying to reflect deeply about Allah causes doubt in the heart of a person. That is the next section, which inshallah ta'ala will begin with in the next lesson. Imagining Allah and thinking about Allah and those types of things uh, and what is impermissible from that. Insha'Allah will begin with that next week at the same time, approximately quarter to seven, 6.45 p.m. approximately. Insha'Allah ta'ala will begin with that.